Francesca. Okay. Um, one of the um, one of my favourite TV shows of last year was Luke. <laughs> I think it's on. Where do you want me to hold it down? No, it's not. No, 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 no. Oi. Okay. Um, was that you? Still didn't work. Oh my goodness. We have gremlins in this machine. We, this is a new one. Still not working. Crazy. Um, one, of, one of my favourite TV shows of last year was uh, Ted Lasso. Anyone watch Ted Lasso? A bunch of us. Um, you know, it really surprised people because it was this heartwarming comedy about American football coach who travels from America to England to coach a soccer team that's really struggling, even though Ted Lasso has, knows nothing about soccer. He goes over there, be the coach. And um, it's, it took everyone by surprise I think because it came out during a time in American history when Donald Trump was president, you had the Capitol Hill riots, you had the, the, um, the Black Lives Matter protests after the George Floyd um, death, and there was widespread disagreement over how to handle COVID. And you might say that there is an epidemic of unkindness in the world, particularly last year, if you remember, just so much turmoil in the world. And at that time, this TV series comes out with a leader who leads with great kindness, humility, and joy. Brilliant, brilliant series if you've seen it. And it's interesting to compare that to the secular creed which you and I are raised to believe from a very early age, which says, Toby, you are special. Uh, trust yourself, be true to yourself, follow your passion, don't accept limits, chart your own course, don't let anyone tell you how to be you, you do you. And we're all raised with that belief. And actually, if you believe that belief, as psychologists and sociologists are now pointing out, it creates a culture of narcissism where people think that the world exists for them and they, we grow up with this profound sense of entitlement. And we expect everyone else in the universe to focus on me and my desires. Perhaps that's why we're living in a culture where there's an epidemic of unkindness. And the Bible, of course, gives us a very different vision for living. The very opposite of our narcissistic culture. It points us away from ourselves to something greater. And to be a Christian is to admit that you are not the center of the universe, that life isn't about me, it's about Jesus Christ and living for him and serving others. That's what life is about if you're a Christian. And of course that's challenging to be told your life is not about you, but it's profoundly refreshing and I think that's why Ted Lasso was such a refreshing TV series, because here's a guy that actually lives for others. Every morning he wakes up and bakes cookies for his boss. He goes into work and he asks Nate, the kit boy, for his advice on the strategy on the soccer pitch that day. Uh, he spends night after night in pubs with uh, supporters of the team he's trying to improve and they just hell abusive over and over and he just laughs it off and he buys them beers and he has a great time with them even though he's going through a painful divorce he's there to help someone else with their divorce he is a person of great kindness living in within an epidemic of unkindness he's a great example of leadership 
Now, it's interesting because leadership in our world has fallen on hard times. As a society, we're suspicious of leaders, often assuming that they will use their power for selfish gain rather than our good, and often our suspicions are well-founded. And in this passage, which Francesca read for us, we read of the problem of power in the wrong hands through the eyes of this king of Israel, Rehoboam. For the last 11 years as a church, we've been working our way through the entire Bible from Genesis at the start, and we finally come to 1 Kings. Every year we pick one book and we pick a term uh, to, to study that book in. And this year we're up to 1 Kings. God's given us this book. He wants us to learn something about himself in it. It's very interesting. Very few people have preached through 1 Kings. All of my heroes, none of them have touched it, which has made preaching it really hard. <laughs> because I'm like, who do I learn from? Uh, so I've just been given the Bible. Toby, learn from the Bible. There's a novel idea. That's, that is my job, just to study the Bible and teach it. So, but we do need teachers, so it's good to learn from others. But um, we're up to 1 Kings, and so far we've seen in the reign of King Solomon that Israel were an absolute high point. We had... Uh, God's people living in God's place and under God's rule. They're the promises to Abraham that are finally fulfilled in the reign of Solomon. They're a great people, uh, enjoying all the fruit of the land, and they're living under God's rule and experiencing His blessing, untold blessings. They're the wealthiest they'd ever been. They're at peace from their enemies. It was a great time. And yet, Solomon's heart is led away from the Lord. And God promises, last week we saw this, God promises to tear the kingdom apart from under him, not in his lifetime, but in the lifetime of his children. And that's what we see this week. So pick up your Bibles, 1 Kings chapter 12, uh, verse 1, and I'm just going to pick up my water bottle. Um, and this is how this chapter begins. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone there to make him king. But when Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon. He returned from Egypt. So here we meet two, two characters, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Rehoboam is King Solomon's son and Jeroboam is a royal official and conspirator to the throne. Rehoboam, um, is, although he's King Solomon's son, he is not king by default. In the Bible, you might uh, call what they had a democratic monarchy. That's probably an exaggeration. But th there's an aspect to um, the kings in Israel. They were never imposed on the people by force. Uh, it had never been a matter of God giving Israel a king who imposed their rule with brute power inflicted on an unwilling people. And so you notice here that Israel come together and they make Rehoboam king. Uh, they make him king, but no sooner have they done that, that they invite Jeroboam to the party. We learn more about Jeroboam in chapter 11, where we're told that he was a royal official in Solomon's court. He was a man of standing who had proven himself to be a very capable leader, and he was given very significant responsibility in Israel, but he stood up to the king, and he rebelled against the king, and that's why he's got a cigar there, very capable, older dude, 
Uh, you, you don't like it, Emma Burns? No, apparently not. Um, but anyway, here you have these two players. Um, and so they call up Rehoboam, the people, because they want the king to do something for them. And this, so verse 3, they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said, so here are their, here are their conditions, your father, Solomon, put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Now, there's some date about this passage. Um, was this just Jeroboam, the cigar-smoking dude, putting out a little bit of political propaganda to undermine the rule of Rehoboam, the new king? That's possible, but personally, I take it that it's actually true. And one of the cracks in Solomon's leadership over Israel was he, yes, he reigned with wisdom and he ushered in a time of prosperity and peace and justice that they'd never seen before, but he achieved that by putting a very heavy workload on Israel. And if you remember in 1 Samuel, when the people of Israel asked God for a king for the first time, Solomon, uh, Samuel the prophet tell Israel hey, if you want a human king, they're just going to take, 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 take. So in 1 Samuel chapter 8, this is what we read. Samuel says to the people, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to plough his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to the officials and attendants, your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys. He will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you that day. So the first time Israel asked for a king, God says, it's a terrible idea. I'm your king, and I will look after you, and I will not take and take and take. I will give and give and give, and yet if you get a human being to be king over your nation, he will not stop taking from you. You see, God's desire for the leader of Israel, God's desire for leadership anywhere is that the leader would serve his people. Not take, 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 take. Um, for, of course, God's kingship over us is one of servanthood and not taking. You know, perhaps many years later, Jesus is thinking about this experience in Israel when he says to his people, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light, which is what it wasn't true of in Solomon's day. What the people sought from Rehoboam is what Jesus promises. His 
yoke is easy, his burden is light, because he is the one who serves rather than taking. But Israel have been in a situation where their king just keeps taking, 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 taking. That's this very heavy burden placed upon their back. And so they come to Rehoboam and say, lighten our yoke. Please, will you do that? And the first thing Rehoboam says is, well, give me a couple of days to think about this. Uh, so they go away for three days and Rehoboam seeks counsel for this difficult decision from two groups. One group I call the old dudes, and one group I call the young dudes, okay? The first group, the old dudes, this is what we read in verse 6. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked them. These men are senior in years and experience. They served with King Solomon who was a king of enormous wisdom. So maybe some of his wisdom has rubbed off onto these old guys. They know the policies that are in place and why they're in place. So they're in the best position to give an answer to the king. And so they respond, verse 7, to Rehoboam, if today you'll be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. So how should Rehoboam act? He should serve his people. If he serves them, he will have their heart. Now, what's strange advice for a king? Don't you think? To be a servant? To serve them? What kind of advice is this? Well, it's the advice continually of the whole Bible, which pictures leadership as a place where you use your power and authority for the good of those underneath you. And that's why when Jesus Christ came along, he said, whoever wants to be great among you must be a servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave. For even the Son of Man, the way he speaks about himself, didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is life in the kingdom of God. The great ones are the ones who serve others. If Rehoboam would serve his people, his people, he will have the allegiance of his people forever. So serve your people, Rehoboam, the old guys say. But as the proverb says, the fear of the Lord's the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom. And Rehoboam was a fool. So verse 8, he rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him, and he asked them, what's your advice? How should we answer the people who say to me, lighten the yoke? We're told that these young dudes grew up with him, which means they grew up with all the wealth, all the entitlement of the princes of the kingdom had. They are men of pride and privilege, position, living in a palace, and they know nothing of the wisdom of leadership. And so unlike the old dudes who give Rehoboam wisdom, they give Rehoboam folly. Verse 10, Rehoboam, tell your people this. My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I'll make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I'll scourge you with scorpions, <laughs> which is funny. Uh, but... Uh, uh, what's interesting here, the, the translators um, 
are too embarrassed to tell you what he's actually saying when he says, my little finger is bigger than my father's waist. It's literally like if you know Hebrew, you know what's actually being said there. It's not my little finger is bigger than my dad's waist. My little thing is bigger than my dad's waist. So here is this um, macho, uh, brutish dude boasting about his sexual prowess and how big a man he is. Uh, he's, and, uh, and notice how arrogant he is. He's this young kid who's achieved nothing in his life, and uh, he presents himself as a bigger man than his father, whose, whose greatness was internationally renowned. And notice how tyrannical this is. They'd heard of the yoke his dad had put on the people. They had lived in palaces as princes with all the entitlement and wealth, and yet they're like, yeah, just increase it. Uh, scourge them with scorpions. Historians suggest that they're speaking about a sadistic whip with barbs, po- barbed points like a stork- scorpion sting embedded in the leather. So how crude, how arrogant, how tyrannical and how foolish the young dudes are in giving the wisdom to Rehoboam. So what's he going to do? Is he going to go with the old dudes, going to go with the young dudes? Um, You know, the folly of young men is not always assumed in the Bible. Young men do sometimes tend to get a bad shtick in our society. Often it's deserved. Um, But, you know, in many ways, um, we we actually want to encourage young men to step up and take responsibility for others. And I think because we've set the... the, the, um, the standards so low, they just, they just go off and live a selfish life. But um, I like what the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, a young man, in the New Testament. He says, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. We started Vine Church 11 years ago, and I was a young man. I was 29 years of age, and I was insecure about my age, and this verse greatly encouraged me No, no, just because you're young, Toby, that doesn't necessarily mean you're foolish. Uh, And so what am I to do? Set an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. So if you're a young man, that's what you're called to do. Don't just give up because young dudes are all kind of uh, screwing around in society. And even in the Bible, we see them make some spectacular fails. Now, you step up and you set an example. But these young men's in this passage, they are fools, and Rehoboam's the bigger fool for listening to them. After the time of three days of consultation, the people come back, and verse 13, the king answered the people harshly. Solomon himself gave a proverb that um, a harsh response arouses anger. And anyway, Rehoboam's not listening to his father's wisdom. Rejecting the advice given by the elders, he followed the advice of the young men and said, My father made your yoke heavy, I'll make it heavier. My father scourged you with whips, I'll scourge you with scorpions. He would not use his power to serve. He uses it to oppress, and he is an absolute fool. And at this point, the glorious kingdom that Solomon had built and established has come into the hands of a foolish, arrogant, young thug 
who serves himself, and the result is the glory of the kingdom of Israel is about to perish. If you keep reading along in the story, you'll see that Israel splits into two nations. The southern nation, made up of two tribes, led by Rehoboam, and the ten northern tribes split off and get led by cigar-smoking Jeroboam, which you can read in the rest of the chapter. What an absolute tragedy. And here we have God's people. Uh, slide. Here we have um, God's people in God's place under God's rule, but it really isn't that way. Do we have the question marks? Yeah, God's people are no longer God's people. They're split into two. Yes, they're still in God's place, but we wonder for how much longer. And they're rejecting God's rule, and so they're going to lose God's blessing. Solomon's failure, his son's foolishness, it shatters the kingdom which had enjoyed such peace, prosperity, and justice. And that's what happens when power is placed in the hands of people who are unworthy of it. Okay, that's the story. What does this mean for us today? Two things. First thing is this, that we, rem- we learn here to remember that God is still in control. Um, in order to get there, you've got to remember... Anytime you read a passage in the Bible, here's a reading tip. The first thing you should do is not think, what does this mean for me today? The first thing you need to do is, what did this mean for the people for whom this was first written for? And the book of 1 and 2 Kings is written for the people of Israel who'd been kicked out of the land and found themselves in Babylon in exile. They'd witnessed the destruction of their holy city and their temple, and they're asking the question, you know, where is God in all of this? For them, this was the end of the world. Their king had been taken capture. Their land had been absolutely desolated. The ten northern tribes had been wiped out by the Assyrian army. The southern two tribes in 583, is it? The Babylonian army came in, sacked the city, killed a whole bunch of people and took the survivors into exile in Babylon. And for them, this is awful. It's terrible. And they're asking the question, how could God possibly have done this? Where is he? Why has he abandoned us? What's happened? That's the question they're all asking. And what's interesting is as you read 1 and 2 Kings... We're given an answer to that question again and again and again. And so even in this passage, if you look down at verse 15, we're told, So the king did not listen to the people, for this turn of events was from the Lord, to fulfill the, Lord had, to fulfill the word the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam. So this is God's doing. The foolishness and wickedness of humans does not thwart the plans and purposes of God. On the contrary, even the attempts to defy God's ways are used by Him to achieve His purposes. And so Israel find themselves reading this book in exile in Babylon, trying to work out why are we here? Why did our nation fail? And the answer is because your leaders were foolish and you went and followed other gods Is God stopped caring about his people? Absolutely not. This was his doing. They're sitting in exile and they're reminded God still has a plan for his people, but it is involving discipline right now. 
And in exile, they learned that lesson. They repented of their sins. They put their hope back in the Lord. And 70 years later, God brought them out of exile and back into the land. Now, we need to learn that same, that same lesson. God is always working out his plan. Elizabeth Elliot is one of the great Christian writers of the 20th century. She was married to Jim Elliot, the missionary who went to Ecuador and was killed trying to bring the gospel to the people of Ecuador. And she wrote some really beautiful books. And in one of her books, she tells the story about a visit to a sheep farm in England where she watched a shepherd um, treat his sheep for parasites. And the way you do that is you get the sheep and you corral them into a very small uh, corridor and then uh, you push them into this pool full of chemicals which kill all the parasites. And as a shepherd, you've got to throw them in the water and you've got to dunk their head. And if you're a sheep, what are you thinking? You're like, isn't my shepherd meant to be taking care of me in this moment? And yet I feel like I'm being drowned by my shepherd. But if you actually had eyes to see, you'd realize, no, the shepherd loves his sheep, and this is the way he's keeping them safe from parasites. And Elizabeth Elliot, as she's talking about, she's like, sometimes God, the, our shepherd's plan for us is hidden. You know, I don't know what it is, you don't know what it is either, and yet the cross and resurrection of Jesus tell us that all things are working for the good of those that God has chosen, which means that God's working in the midst of the good and the bad of your life. He has a plan. Even when you're in Israel and it feels like everything's falling apart, this once powerful, wealthy, just nation is, is crumbling. No, 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 God has a plan. He's going to use this for our good. That's the first lesson uh, of 1 Kings 12. Second lesson is this, realize that something. Are we getting there? Sorry. Realize uh, that God has placed you uh, where you are to serve. That's the application for us. It's a joy to serve. That's what Rehoboam could not appreciate. Realize that God has placed you where you are to serve. That's what life is about. That's what kingship is about. Is serving is beneath you, then leadership is beyond you. That what it means to be a leader is to be a servant of others. Now, is that how you view your life? Is one of the ways you view Toby Neal, who am I? I'm a servant of Jesus. I'm a servant of others. That's what my whole life is about. That's what life is about. Do you have joy in serving others? Is that how you live? Now, as we draw near to moving out of the White House here, we need to start thinking about and giving thanks for the people who have made it possible for us to do church here for the last two years. Uh, it's been a really tiring uh, two years. Um, and when we came back from lockdown last year, and again at started this year, how many lockdowns? We've been through three or something, whatever it was. Every time we come out of lockdown, we find many, many people are unwilling to serve at church here. And generally, there are three reasons people are unwilling to serve after lockdown. Some people are scared of coming to church and interacting too closely with people because of the fear of getting COVID. Others grew lazy during lockdown. 
because they'd rock up to church on their couch, which taught them to believe that church is meant to be comfortable, easy, and require nothing of you. That's a lie. Uh, And then others uh, felt disconnected from church because of the lockdowns. And the prospect of coming back to church and having to serve others when, you know what, like everything's changed, I don't really feel like I belong here anymore. It's very hard for people to return to church and serve. And there are, I think, three reasons why some of you, when we came back, we were like, hey, could you join the kids' team? You're like, oh, I don't feel comfortable. They're one of those three reasons, I think. And yet, many of you did come back and you started serving, even though you're feeling anxious about that. And I want to honor some people right now in the room who did that. Some people in our church showed up at 7.30 a.m. for the last two years to just set up church every Sunday. We have an amazing setup team. And uh, one of the guys is a guy called Iko Abbas. And he's in his 60s. In a month's time, he's getting a double hip replacement. But at 7.30 a.m., he comes and he unpacks a van with heavy stuff. He walks up the stairs, puts stuff out so that you guys can enjoy church every Sunday morning. Praise God for Ico Abbas, right? There are those among us who come at nine uh, or earlier than nine. What time do you get here, Luke? 7.30 as well, the AV team. Get here at 7.30, set up AV to sing on the stage, and they stay all the way to the end of 11 a.m. church so that we can hear the gospel and sing of Jesus' praises. There are those who show up on Sunday mornings to teach the Bible downstairs to kids in spaces that are obviously not designed for kids. I'm looking at Karis. Like, this is a fashion school. What do you do in a fashion school? You get pins and you put them into mannequins as you're putting dresses. Like, how do you run a kids' program in a place like this? Absolutely incredible. There are those who, when Steve, Andy, and and Nate, and Kate left, stepped up to lead ministries without much help, and you had to work out how you do this thing on your own. Um, there, are, there, are those who, um, there are those on parish council. So Stu Larkin, who was here just a second ago, he gets so many emails every week from the builders asking him to make decisions on things. And we were having a meeting that went to like 10, 30, 11 o'clock on Thursday evening at night, and he leaves, the, he, he leaves the meeting early on Zoom because he's like, I've got a stack load of emails from the builders that I still have to finish up. Like, that's the incredible way he serves. And the reason that all of these people and the people I haven't mentioned do this is because that's what life's about. We, we worship a king who served us, and it's a joy to serve him because we want others to know the life he gives, the love he shows us and the freedom from guilt and shame that we have experienced. But I want to speak to some of you for whom serving is not a central part of your life. And there is this attitude, I think, among some of us, where our view is that, you know what, church, it's overplanned, overstructured, we ask too much, and really, can't we just come along, can't I just come along and enjoy some community Can't we just go with the flow and be organic church and kind of, why do we have to be so organized and and have teams? And and I was sharing this with a friend a couple of years ago, and he shared with me a, um, 
a video which is very funny, which kind of answers that question. So we're going to have a watch of this very funny video. Dave, did you say you were going to make dinner? I couldn't remember. <sighs> what? I just wish you'd take some initiative and cook your own dinner for once. I've been at work too, you know, and what, now I get to come home and pack the dishwasher and then unpack the dishwasher and cook dinner and put the washing on. And you know what? I can't continue to live like this because hey, it's hey, not for hey, me. Hey, relax. It's going to be all right. Here, I'll just show you. Okay, I've been doing this since we moved in. See this basket thing? I don't know how it happens, if it's the house or what, but any dirty clothes you put in this basket, somehow, the next day, they're just clean, folded, and in a perfect pile on your bed. You're not serious. I couldn't believe it at first either, but it just keeps happening. That's why I didn't tell you, I didn't want to jinx it. You are insane. Try it, you'll see. Unless it's only chosen me. See, I don't know. I can't do this. No, wait. There's other things too. Plates, cutlery, pizza boxes, dirty tissues, anything you leave on this coffee table just vanishes overnight. I mean, sometimes I'll see how far I can push this thing and I'll just leave everywhere. And then sure enough, the next day, it's all gone, just vanished. It's magic. No, she wouldn't have left me. This is what I think happened. I heard her get up in the middle of the night to get a drink or something. She must have fallen onto the magic coffee table and just vanished. Are you insane? No, she's not insane. I've got the same coffee table at home. It's funny because it's true, right? Uh, some people live their life completely oblivious to what needs to happen in order to keep a household going, and some Christians live completely oblivious to the things that need to happen for church to happen week in, week out. Many Christians have this naive view of what it takes for church to happen each week, and perhaps that's you. And you come to church and you benefit from the ministry of others, but you yourself don't contribute. And that's a sign of tremendous immaturity. What being a man, a grown-up man, a grown-up woman, a person of maturity is, is that you take responsibility for the things that need to happen both in your family and in the communities in which you live. That you notice things, that you realize things don't just work out when you gather people together. It actually requires hard work, initiative, and things like that. And so you show up early, you stay back late, and you take care of the family that you belong to. Now, we're about to move back into the church home, and we could move in and put our feet up if we don't want to be like Jesus and if we don't want anyone else to come and learn about Jesus. Or we could move in with all of us playing the part on the team that Jesus has put us in. It is going to be a team effort as we move in. And if it isn't obvious, we really need you. Right now, our kids' ministry doesn't have enough leaders to do what they're doing every week. And so the question is, would that be a ministry you'd be able to come and join at 9.15 on Sunday mornings? I'm not just talking to women. I know for guys, sometimes there's this weird thing with being in church, teaching kids, but the parents want dudes to come 
not, not dodgy dudes. Uh, <laughs> they want men to come and teach their kids how to follow Jesus. My son Archer would love for a couple of you guys to come and teach him how to follow Jesus. Our AV team needs people who are willing to be trained to make the Word of God heard on Sundays. Uh, they're desperate. They're, we're really short on AV. Could you serve in that way? Our foodies team needs people who are able to create a welcoming environment with great food on Sunday mornings. We're about to move into the church. We've got a coffee machine. We currently don't have a coffee team. Can you pull coffees? We're going to have a barbecue there, and we're going to want to do lunch after church quite a few times a month. Could you join that team? Can you start thinking about this? If you're new at church and you've joined our church, could you join one of those teams? And if you're at our church and you're serving, can I ask whether you could join a second team? Because here's what I notice around the place. A lot of us are serving, and we're serving once every three weeks or once every four weeks if I'm around on that day. Now, by anyone's definition, that is not sacrificial serving of others. That's a casual service. And so would you be able to increase your frequency in serving? There is a huge pressure on a few people who are serving in a huge way at church every week. And we could lessen that pressure if um, more of us serve with greater frequency. There's a Jeroboam, there's a Rehoboam and his dude friends in all of us. There's a sense of entitlement where it's natural for us to just want to be served. And that's not what life's about. Life's about giving and serving. Jesus rescued us so that we shouldn't live for ourselves, but for him who gave himself for us. So I want to finish with two stories. First is about my father-in-law, uh, Michael Orpwood, who died of cancer about 15 years ago. This was my 21st Roaring 30s party, and that's him sitting next to me. Uh, he was a very capable man. He was a QC, a Queen's Counselor, and he was, uh, what I'm told, was the only Queen's Counselor, a very senior solicitor in New South Wales. He was the only one who uh, ever became a QC uh, who didn't choose to be a QC. They asked him to be one because he brought so much to the table. He drafted legislation for the New South Wales government, very qualified, very capable man, very clever, very intelligent. And every summer, every January, he and, uh, he and his wife, me and my wife, uh, would go away to a beach mission on the central coast and we'd stay at Erina High School, which was the seediest high school in the world. This was before Kevin Rudd threw money at all the schools and cleaned them all up. And we would sleep. I, would, I used to sleep in these classrooms at this high school. There was chewing gum on the floor. Rats would run past you at night. It was filthy. And he and his wife stayed in a caravan at the school in the, caravan, in the car park. It was just like so weird. But he did it. Why? Because we were running a mission to help people hear about Jesus. And uh, he, every day... Uh, he would look around and look at what needed to be done, and he chose the job of cleaning the toilets every day to help out. No one knew who he, was, who he was in real life. No one knew what his job was. He just got in and did what needed to be done. He wasn't thinking of himself, wasn't thinking about his job. He wasn't thinking about his, how he should be honoured. 
He was just there to serve. I remember hearing the minister of that church talk about him in uh, one of his sermons, and he said that Mike was a man deeply in touch with the Holy Spirit. That experience of being in touch with the Spirit of God brought him to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus, to give thanks for whatever the Lord Jesus had placed in his life, and it made him someone who wanted to be like the Lord Jesus, serving others. It was never about himself. That was my father-in-law, a great man who taught me so much. Now, I wonder, is that the story of your life? Is that what your life is all about? When I think about my life and I start dreaming about what my life could be, should be, what I wish it would be, I can't help but thinking of Chris Emsworth. <laughs> All right? Um, uh, you know, we share a couple of things in common our, our looks, our physical prowess. Uh, no, no, but when I look at his, his life, it's very hard not to think that he's made it. He's successful. He's Thor, right? He's a superhero. The world loves him. He has a body that's fit and strong. He's a great, from what I can tell, I don't know him, but he looks like a great father. He takes his kids away all the time. He lives in this house at Broken Head, just south of Byron Bay. I've found it on Google Maps. That's how big a stalker I am. There's a beach right here. It's an absolute palace. It's got its own workout room downstairs. It's awesome takes his family on holidays to amazing places. He's fun. It seems like nothing ever phases him. And if I'm honest, that's the life I want. Like, that's it. But when I read the Bible and I learn from Jesus, I realize that that isn't what life is about. Life is about this. Life is about serving people. Here's Nick Chua, who teaches kids in our kids' program downstairs on a Sunday morning. That's the good life. That's the life Jesus has put before me and say, hey, here is what life is about. It's not about you. Life is about Jesus. Life is about using all the time and talents and treasures that God has given you to make Jesus known. That's real life. That's the good life. So don't be deceived by Satan. Don't be deceived by the foolish dudes of our world who will flatter your ego and convince you that your life is about you. It isn't. You've been saved for a higher purpose. Rehoboam had a place. It was given to him by God, but it wasn't him. And you've been given a place. You've been given things by Jesus Christ, and you've been given them for the sake of others. Rehoboam, he made it all about himself, and he was an absolute failure of a man. You, what are you going to do with your life? Christian, you follow a king who serves. Give up your life in service of others, and you will not waste it. Live for yourself, Jesus says, and you'll absolutely waste your life. This is what life in the kingdom of God looks like. It's, it's about giving, not receiving. It's about serving, not taking. And that's what this chapter is about. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for this reminder that life is about serving you and serving others. And we confess that we don't always live that way. Please come and change our hearts so that we would covet the life of the kids' church teacher more than the life of Chris Hemsworth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.